batteries are just going to become such a critically ubiquitous part of our lives that we owe it to ourselves in the future to have the best batteries in those those conditions. And not just the best in terms of performance, but the best in terms of cost, performance, and sustainability. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Onis Bolton, the founder and CEO of Octet Scientific. Octet is a specialty chemical company dedicated to supporting zinc-based batteries through the development of novel electrolyte additive chemistry. Onus is a 14-year veteran of the specialty chemicals industry with a PhD in material science and specific expertise in organic electrochemistry. He is an experienced organic and material chemist whose work has been published in prestigious scientific journals like the Journal of Electrochemical Society, the Journal of American Chemical Society, and he's been highlighted on the cover of Nature Chemistry and in The Economist. Prior to founding Octet, Onus created new organic additives for Aditech, the world's largest producer of chemicals to the electroplating industry. At Octet, he and his team are working closely with a wide variety of zinc battery chemistries and manufacturers worldwide to continue to perfect zinc battery chemistry through novel additive development. Onus began Octet by winning two highly competitive funding awards from the U.S. National Science Foundation based on the idea that establishing safe and sustainable zinc-based energy storage will require optimized additive chemistry and more recently has closed over an additional million in traditional venture funding led by Jumpstart here in Cleveland. During our conversation, we discuss the potential for zinc-based batteries, the history of energy production, of energy storage, and of energy use, and we cover the future of batteries and storage and how the work Octet Scientific is doing will facilitate our transition to carbon-neutral sustainable power. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Onus Bolton after a brief message from our sponsor. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes. So in uh, preparing for our conversation, I have to say it's hard to not be really excited about the work you're doing. Because, <laughs> you know, at a high level, I understand, you know, batteries are a key component to, to meeting our electrification goals as a society. You know, we have the proliferation of all these things that are, are quite topical at the moment from EVs and residential and industrial energy storage. And I get that without a stable supply of batteries, we will not have a sustainable energy future. And that 
through Octet Scientific and the work you're focused on to try and like find the stable supply of batteries is really exciting. And so even just, you know, setting the the stage here, I'd love to start with just, you know, what sparked that interest for for you? How how do you find yourself thinking about th- this problem? Yeah, well, my my background is I I did an undergraduate uh, studies in chemical engineering because I always I liked chemistry in high school. I liked the way the periodic, the periodic table kind of laid out like a box of Legos and the idea that like everything that you can think of is made out of these these blocks, you know. So I I, I gravitated toward chemistry. But then, you know, my parents, everyone said, oh, do engineering. Engineers get paid well. So I did engineering. So I did chemical engineering and kind of slowly became less of a chemical engineer and more of a straight chemist through undergraduate and then grad school and my postdoc. So my training, largely, I I identify as a chemist, an organic chemist who designs molecules. And I had been working for a company that works on electroplating. So the company is called Adotech. It's a large German company. And we had a little research team embedded at, on campus at Case Western. So I was on campus there doing work with some of the faculty, but also the company, basically cooking up these different kinds of molecules that would control how metal gets put down on stuff. So, you know, if you've seen like a the bumper on a car, you know, like, like putting chrome down on something to make the chrome shiny and smooth and so it sticks well, it's all done in these big electroplating baths where you dunk it in this nasty acid and you run electricity through it and like the, the, you, you convert the chromium and you know, what we were working on were circuit boards. So putting the copper where you want the copper to go and we were making all these wild molecules that kind of float around inside the bath. They just work at the surface. So they're kind of like at the surface of the, the material kind of controlling how the metal atoms get put down so that you can put them where you want them, not where you don't have them be a certain crystal structure. You know, you try to control them. That company had some some restructuring, and essentially my my position moved to Berlin, Germany, mm. and I thought eh, I think I'll I'll wait here for now. Um, but I was trying to think of a way that I could uh, potentially start my own company through government grant kind of support. So the NSF National Science Foundation is how we got started, and I was thinking, okay, what do I know how to do? I know how to design and synthesize molecules as an organic chemist. And I tried to find a way to pair that skill set with something that I could feel really passionate about, you know, something that would be like, I'm really helping the future. And I'm not just, you know, making something for a company that wants to sell it or solving some sort of small, you know, business problem at like a materials company, but something where I thought like, if I do this, it'll change something about the way the future, you know, like uh, sustainability, energy, climate change, the way these things are all interwoven uh, was what inspired me to look at batteries and I should also be sure to recognize my friend, uh, Professor Rohana Kolkar at Case Western in the, the Department of Chemical Engineering. He had nudged me in this direction too and said that you know, he had done some work previously on zinc batteries. And he said, you know, zinc batteries have been around a long time, but they've generally been in the non-rechargeable space. Um, so he'd done some work looking at different kinds of additives for you know, helping them be more rechargeable by stopping some of the things you don't want there. And so he and I teamed up together to do um, the first grant proposal. So what led me to this space, and, and to be completely honest, when this started, I, I knew so little about batteries, embarrassingly little about batteries to now be the founder of a battery you know, kind of company. You know, I, I, I knew at least that inside a battery, you're basically electroplating. You're basically depositing metal, and then you're oxidizing that metal away. And that's, those are the two stages of char- you know, uh, discharge and charging a battery. So I knew that additives could help this, this process. So I saw where a, a place that... The IP was was underdeveloped. Well, first of all, that zinc had big potential. 
that zinc metal, I don't want to, these are questions maybe for, for later in the talk, but, um, <laughs> you know, zinc has a lot of great potential. It's been used in batteries for a long time, but it's kind of bottlenecked a bit when this rechargeability problem. And so if we can find the right molecule to unlock that potential, we could have these wonderful batteries, you know, that are, that are future-proof, sustainable, safe, sourced from the U.S., recyclable, all these great things. So it just kind of came together in a nice way that thing I know how to do, develop organic molecules that help control the way metal gets deposited electrochemically, could unlock a lot of potential for a very attractive future technology. So that's what led to the first the, the first grant proposal that that I wrote that that started Octet. Mm. So I definitely want, and we'll we'll unpack. Uh, I'm sure at yeah, I tend to go a little things. too fast, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but for, perhaps before we we get to there, I think it would be really interesting to hear, particularly as we make our way towards zinc, like how our energy production and storage works today, status quo. And like, what are the, you know, inherent problems with that? How has it changed over time? I know lithium has become really, you know, quite debated and, and charged, you know, no pun intended, and, in, in, you know, the, the discourse around scarcity, resources, efficacy. What does the, the space look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the lessons that really, you know, the, the things that have impressed on me since I've been doing this is kind of naively before all this, I, I kind of thought of like power plants as like these factories where we made power. Like, you know, they're making electrons and I just kind of imagined that they've got some store of electrons. But what I've come to find is there's no storage at all. And power plants that we have these days are more like motors. And, you know, the, elect the, the electrons that are flying through the wires, turning into photons and like lighting up the room I'm in right now were generated at a power plant seconds ago. You know, and it's basically like our power system is one where we're, we're burning fuel or, or whatever we're doing. We're doing it to cre create electricity right now. And so what doesn't get used right now just doesn't get used or gets wasted. You know, and it, so it's, it's this very kind of supply-demand kind of system where the industry has, knows how to manage the peak. You know, they, there's no storage, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to here. Like, um, you know, I, it's, it's woefully inefficient. I mean, just, you know, I don't want to – people put a lot of effort into making it more efficient, but it's really just motor is running, putting out electricity, and then, you know, things are using it or not on the other end. Do they need too much? Then we have brownouts. Do they not need? Do they not use enough? Then we have excess capacity. We we burn too much oil or whatever. So that's kind of this, the backward-looking state of our power grid, and really the present state too. What energy storage will enable is us not to throw away those electrons, us to save those electrons when they're easy to get, like when the sun's shining or the wind's blowing, and then you know use them later. So it's all about making the way we handle energy smarter and more efficient. You know, if, if you look at how much energy humanity actually uses versus, say, the amount of solar energy that strikes the planet in an hour or so, you know, we, we use such a small fraction of the actual energy that's just hitting this planet. But we got to get a lot better at harvesting it, saving it, and not wasting it. So batteries are a big part of that. Batteries are not the only type of energy storage that exists that's being developed, but they're definitely the most attractive, I'd say, the most deployable and the most you know, modular and scalable option that we have. So batteries will play a very big role in that. And that's, that's looking at it from the grid standpoint. There's also the use case. I mean, now more than ever, we, we need power everywhere. We need energy. You know, I, I don't know what it's like for you, but when the power goes out at my house, 
life stops. <laughs> you know, <laughs> all of my kids don't know how to entertain themselves if there's not electricity. And, you know, like we just need to charge so many things. Everything's computerized. And we're struggling with that as, a, you know, as, as humanity, as a nation right now, you know, when the, the inconsistencies in the grid and we're a long way from the point when we're all charging our cars off that same grid, you know? And so there's still a lot of work to be done to, to prepare our grid to support electric vehicles, electric everything that we're looking at in the future. And so it's amazing. I like to look at it like people tend to think of fossil fuels that we've used in the past as like a source of energy. And I think of them less as a source of energy and more as like a storage medium for that energy. Like what, you know, where, where did this energy come from? Well, it came from the sun. You know, the, the sun hit the planet. It grew some ferns, a dinosaur stepped on it. It, you know, it turned into oil. So it wasn't really like, a, you know, it's, it's a source, yes, but it's also kind of like where that energy has been stored for these millions of years. Right. And so the ubiquity of fossil fuels today will be replaced by storage mediums like batteries. You know, like there's, there's probably a point in our future where every electron we produce is going to have gone in and out of a battery between the sun or the wind or whatever and powering my, my phone, you know? So it's all going to change in big ways. That's a, a fascinating framing of it. Yeah, it's like nature figured out solar power a, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's the sort of thing that even climate change aside, there's only so much oil, you know, like we're, we're only going to be able to use this for so long. So we need to switch to alternative methods. Wind and solar are such great options, but you know, we need, we need better storage solutions. So uh, grid storage is a really exciting slice of the, the markets for zinc batteries that we're working on, but it's, it's, it's maybe the most, the biggest, most exciting, most explosively growing, but it's certainly not the only one too. Yeah. I, one thing you mentioned that is, is really kind of fascinating to me is, is maybe how much room for improvement there is on the storage side or, you know, how much maybe the attention has been focused more on getting that marginal cost of energy going to zero on the energy mm -hmm. production side, you know, through solar or wind, moderately more intensive solutions like gas, but all working towards, you know, creating energy that we can use more cheaply, effectively, sustainably, and less about how do we preserve maybe that energy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there are targets out there for what they call levelized cost of storage. You'll see like LCOS is or sometimes LCES, energy storage. But basically it's, you know, how much money does it take to store this electron? You know, like you put, you put electron in, you get one back. What did that cost you? And there's a target. And to be honest, I don't exactly know what that number is today, but there's a target that the Department of Energy has put forward in their, in their, uh, their plan that they want to get that down to like four cents per kilowatt hour, I think. So, you know, making, making that cheap is going to be a big, part of, a big part of all this. But the great thing about the grid as it's designed in the U.S. is it's, it's kind of this energy marketplace. I don't want to talk too far out my own field here, but I know, you know, if you, put, if you put energy back onto the grid from your house or whatever, you know, you get paid back for that energy. It's, it's, it's totally, you know, commoditized on the grid. So we have a great opportunity for batteries and storage and the imbalance of costs between peak times and, and other times, um, you know, our energy is, is, is very liquid in a financial sense. So that will speed this all up, make this easier. Once, once the ability to store energy gets cheap enough, you know, it can be, it can be a revenue stream in some cases. And of course it will just build around that, but reducing all those costs is, is definitely a, an aim. It's a difficult thing to work against though, because fossil fuels are so very cheap, <laughs> you know, right. because like I said, nature's, nature's already made these batteries 
and bury them under the ground. And so all we need to do is dig them up, you know, and they're exceptionally energy dense, you know, because we just burn them and, you know, not great for the planet, not great for the atmosphere and our carbon issues, but, you know, it's, it's hard to break our addiction to fossil fuels because of the costs and the infrastructure we built up around them. So you, you mentioned at the onset, you know, founding Octet that, you know, you, you put forth this, this application. What, what was the, you know, obviously we're, we're going to get to zinc, but you know, what was the thesis, if you will, of, of what it was that you wanted to investigate here and, and validate and improve out over time? Yeah. So as I said, you know, I, I saw this, this potential for a better type of battery that has a lot of advantages over current state of the art, you know, advantages even over lithium, definitely over lead acid that were really kind of bench, you know, bottlenecked by problems that additives could solve, you know, better chemistry inside the battery could, could solve these problems. And so that was kind of my, the pitch of my first proposal to the, the National Science Foundation. This is the STTR, SBIR program, so the small business uh, research programs they have, which are fantastic. And what I did was look at the available IP, like the uh, most of the, the patent literature, which is free to search, you can look through it, and as much academic literature as I could find to see what the state of molecular development was for this problem. And I, I, I found it to be rather underdeveloped. So my pitch in the proposal was, hey, zinc batteries could be great. They could be this future-proof, sustainable solution. There are certain zinc chemistries that could even outperform lithium in terms of energy density. Um, we can talk more about that later, but there are, there are some that exist. They're just not rechargeable yet. You know, so I said, we're going to find the chemicals that are going to unlock this potential for these batteries. And I know how to do it because I make molecules and I'm you know, synthetic chemist and all this. So, so that was really kind of the, the quick pitch behind this thing was better batteries, you know, U.S. made, recyclable, future-proof kind of batteries that are based on zinc. They just need better chemicals. I can find those chemicals. Give me money. <laughs> so, you know, and, and I'm proud to say that we, I, I say we, it was, it was me, but I was partnering with uh, Professor Kolkar. He was my kind of legitimizing uh, name on the, on the first SCTR. We won the first, you know, the first proposal that I wrote up, we, we, we won with the NSF. So we got kind of an earlier start than we expected at the beginning of the, the company's life. And so, and, and you've, you've since, you know, received, I believe over a million in, in grant funding mm-hmm. from the, the National Science Foundation uh, in, in kind of pursuit of, of this work. So they, they, they have given you the, the money that <laughs> you had. On yeah, for. yeah. So the first one we did was an STTR and it was kind of organized like this. I mean, we're not, we're not technically a spin out of case. We partnered with them to basically do the electrochemical kind of qualification. So we was kind of broken down like I was designing the molecules so the molecular design IP was, was my own. And then um, Rohan and his group were doing the analysis. And we, we published a paper together. I think that was really kind of his goal there. So not really a startup, but we definitely got like an assist uh, from, from his group to get this whole thing started. That STTR phase one did not get a phase two, but kind of from the lessons learned from that, we, we set out to make a, a, a more focused uh, new SBIR phase one that was really just focused on grid storage. So mm. zinc-based grid storage rather than zinc batteries kind of writ large like the first one was. So that's the one where we got the phase one, was quite successful, excellent customer engagement. And now we're currently in our phase two of that um, SBIR program. So that's what kicked us up to the over a million dollars you know, in, in grant funding from the NSF. Can you take us through 
you know, perhaps what some of those learnings were from the the first go at it, and then in in phase one, you know, what does an MVP actually look like? Like, what was some of that validation work that you were doing, and and the reception that that you got from doing it? Yeah, yeah. So to be to be clear, we we're a specialty chemical manufacturing company, so our product is a chemical. I mean, it's 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 a white powder is what it looks like. Like we have a number of them, but most of them are white powders, you know, so that they're not so exciting to look at. What we learned from that first STTR, that phase one that didn't get a phase two, and then our later successful phase one to two, was we needed to be a lot more aggressive about you know, engaging with our customers. And I think that what's great about the NSF program, and if you're involved in any sort of, they have another kind of earlier program called I-Core, like I-C-O-R-P-S. And these are excellent programs. They make you go through the kind of a mini I-Core when you do uh, in their SBIR program. It kind of if it forces you to talk to your would-be customers or who you think the customers could be to really kind of find that that uh, market fit, customer discovery is what it is. And if you're a scientist like like I have I am was, you know that's that can be difficult. You know you have this product that you it's kind of a concept. You think this might work. You think people will want it, but you really need to get a kind of it feels like ahead of yourself. But to get out there and find out do, do people really need this. So it forces you to talk to these companies and you don't go pitching them your solution. You, you ask for their problems, mm. you know, and you say, you know, you know, what, what's your biggest pain point? You know, what are you, what are you struggling with? And you're hoping that they say the thing that you know how to make. <laughs> so from that first round experience, we made a lot of connections and we found that there was definitely a big need in the zinc battery industry for the solution that we were developing. There, there were certain new kinds of technologies being developed, kind of workarounds of some of the problems that we addressed being being developed. No one was doing exactly what we do and nothing was as uh, seamless to use as our solution. So we learned that those customers are out there. We made great connections with them. They want the stuff. But like I mentioned before, we got that first grant a bit sooner than we expected. So we were, you know, we didn't have our lab really up as fast as we would like we developed a product and we had a really good product, but it wasn't quite ready to send to customers until after we had submitted for that phase two application. So I think the biggest lesson I learned was get closer to customers as soon as possible. Because when we got back and did our successful, you know, you can, as an example, in your phase one proposal, you can submit up to, I think, three like letters of support mm. for whatever you think is impactful. And so the first one I made, naively, I had none of these letters of support because you know, I thought, well, well, we'll learn what this is, process is like and then we won the grant. But for our second phase one, I had three letters of support from three of the, the biggest developers of zinc-based grid storage you know, saying exactly the solution Octet is making will have transformative change on our product and we can't wait to get it. You know, and those, those relationships we built in our first phase one. So we kind of did some growing up on the customer side, more so than the product side between phase one, your first phase one, and later successful phase one. So we found out which, which market we think really has the momentum to go somewhere fast and carry us along with them. And which of those customers, thankfully they, they intersected quite a bit, which of those customers were looking for a solution like the one we had. And that's we, we, we had flying colors on our second phase one. Our phase two had even more customer voice in it. And that was you know also flying colors review. So, I mean, that's the biggest takeaway. If you are a scientist background person like like I am and you're developing some sort of technolo- tech, technology product, there's, still, there's a lot of unknowns. And in academic science world, you know, you, you kind of live, you talk about the past, you talk about data, you talk about things that are done and you understand and you get punished very hard in that world for not knowing 
what's next or being too conjecturing too much about what this could do, what that could do. And the startup world is kind of the opposite, you know, where <laughs> it's all about what could be, what this could do, what this could mean. So shifting those gears, I think, is, is difficult from a science background. And so I think we're learning, even, even now, we're still learning to get a lot more aggressive about our product works, our product's going to be awesome for you, customer, and let's start from there. Because we spent a lot of time thinking, well, will the product work? Is this good? Is this going to... We've got enough under our belt now to say, no, this product's great. You know, we've helped a lot of customers. We've made big improvements to their batteries. You know, it's happening. It's time to sell this stuff. So kind of shifting those gears was a big part of our, our learning curve. What does the, the actual product and, and company look like today? Today, we are a company of six people. We are in Cleveland proper. We're, we're in Midtown Cleveland. I don't know if you know, but we're uh, the Baker Electric Car Company, or Baker Electric Motors, I forget what, Baker Electric, was an electric car company in Cleveland in the early 20th century. So you can actually see one of these cars in the museum, in the Western Reserve Historical Society Museum, but we're actually in their building. So their building is here on Euclid Avenue, and that's where our lab is. We have lab space, about 1,000 square feet, where we do organic chemistry, so we're making new molecules, scaling them up, and also our electrochemistry, where we're testing them in battery conditions to see if they do the things we want them to do in batteries. We have a product portfolio currently that has about three different sections. We have kind of our old first-generation products that do a certain thing for batteries. They stop dendrite growth. We have a mid-product, which is for a certain type of kind of near-neutral or acidic electrolyte zinc batteries. And then we're rolling out a third one right now that's all about hydrogen suppression. So solving individual problems with the battery. So we have these kind of product lines formed. We're about to, maybe even this week or next week, submit what will be our sixth patent application. Um, our first patent has been granted. It's made it all the way through. So we are aggressively developing new chemicals, engaging with customers, sending out samples. I think now... More than 20, I, th I think we're up to 25, but not quite to 30 yet, customers, you know, zinc battery makers around the world that have, have tested or are testing our materials. Some of our earlier products we're currently scaling up. So we're producing in our lab here scales of up to one kilogram is what we've made and sold in the past. And now we have customers who are needing 20 to 100 kilograms for, for piloting, for, for qualifying at their, in their battery manufacturing. So some of our first products now we're scaling up. Earlier products are being tested. We're doing a lot with just six people. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> We're busy. <laughs> it, it sounds like it. I think it might be a, a good point here to, to get a little bit in the weeds of it. And, you know, knowing quite a lot will, will go over in my head <laughs> um, to, to the degree. And maybe a, a good entry point to it is from a, from a sales and, and kind of marketing perspective, is more of the work that you have to do educating people about the detriments and, and, you know, challenges of the current state, you know, other solutions that currently exist like lithium, or is it more, you know, convincing people of the merits of zinc and its efficacy and, and, and maybe through that lens, how do you think about competition as well? Yeah, I would say that because what we are making is an additive, you know, as a component that would go into the batteries, you know, the, the, the burden lays more firmly on our customers to convince the, the, their customers are the end users. So, you know, we're not making actual, we're not making any batteries here. We, we make them for testing, but like our, our product goes into a battery. So we're doing our part to help kind of spread that word. We're involved with NatBat, uh, which is a national battery professional society. 
trying to raise the awareness of zinc batteries as, as a very real commercial scalable alternative to lithium in places where lithium doesn't make sense. And we have to walk a very fine line. Lithium is not bad. Lithium is not a bad technology. Lithium, lithium is quite literally going to save the world, lithium-ion batteries, by replacing our combustion engine cars with electric cars. But there are a lot of challenges facing that in terms of supply chain. Um, you know, there are safety issues and this sort of thing, but they're just a matter of overhead and, and, and cost, essentially. But our position is that lithium is great, lithium will save the world, but lithium doesn't make sense everywhere. Hmm. And a line I like to use is that, you know, we've discovered lithium batteries are very dense and nice. They're, they're, you can use them to make cell phones that last a long time or laptops last a long time. They're dense. And then, you know, credit to Tesla for thinking, well, you know what, let's, let's take like 7,000 cell phone batteries, smash them together, and we could, we could drive like a long-distance passenger vehicle. It's like, oh, hey, yeah, that works. That's great. And there's need for that. But now it's like, okay, but should we take like, you know, a, a million of these things, squish them together and power the grid? You know, that, because that battery doesn't need to move. That battery, you know, it could be a lot of other things. So grid batteries, stationary storage, places where safety is a really high concern. There's a lot of places for batteries that don't really need to be lithium. So that's kind of our, our position is that zinc is represents a, a family of batteries that have a really large number of benefits from safety, sustainability, ec- economics, supply chain, scalability. I mean, there's really no detriment to them at all, other than the fact they're still kind of young on the rechargeable uh, world. And they're not, you know, as energy dense as lithium, but then again, nothing is, you know, they get close, but they're not as, not as dense as lithium. Um, but I think I've trailed off. <laughs> your, no, I, uh, I'll keep the trail going actually, because when you okay. talk about some of those factors, the factors of the, the material itself of, of lithium, of zinc, hazard, scarcity, supply chain, sustainability, what, what do those look like for zinc? Yeah. Zinc is already a very widely available and used material. You know, the statistics that I like to cite when I talk about the, the ease of use for zinc is that whereas with lithium, there's, there's a challenge of supply chain. You know, there's, there's, there's lithium all throughout the Earth's crust. Lithium is a very light element and it's, it's there, it's prevalent. But it, it's hard to isolate and hard to, hard to process. It's very reactive. And in some ways, we've kind of already found the easy to get to lithium. And it's in South America and it's in Australia and they have these brines that we can extract. So on one hand, we've kind of hitched our wagons to lithium ion batteries and they're, they're fantastic technologies to power our cars and all sorts of things. And numbers of about you know, how much more lithium is it going to take to get us to a full conversion to uh, you know, electric vehicles. And I see numbers like, well, we need eight times more lithium production. And you know, right now you can see from the price of lithium it's gone up tremendously in the last few years. You know, the, la- the price of lithium-ion batteries has been going down and down and down. So quite, quite famously, over the course of the last 10 or 20 years, it's gone down like 90%, the cost of the batteries. And a lot of that's because we've gotten a lot better about streamlining the manufacturing process and, and not because the materials have gotten cheaper. And now we've kind of hit this inflection point where, okay, everyone's on board. There's over 300 gigafactories have been announced around the world right now. Everyone's ready to go. Now they're fighting over the lithium. And so it'll take a long time for that to, to balance back out. I follow um, Benchmark Minerals Analysis uh, is one of the voices in this space. And they, they like to say, and I like to repeat, that we can open a gigafactory in 24 months. You know, it's, it, that's quick. That's a, a real triumph. But to open a lithium mine can take five to seven years. It's kind of becoming a very serious pinch point for the rollout of lithium batteries. Zinc, on the other hand, is very widely available. And there are over 50 countries in the world right now that mine zinc. 
Um, I think the last number I heard was 27 countries smelt zinc. You know, zinc is easier to work with. When I'm talking to Americans, I like to point out that the largest zinc mine in the world is in Alaska. So the Red Dog Mine has the largest reserves and production in the world. But what really excites me is that in the U.S. alone, some years over a billion dollars worth of scrap zinc is recycled already just from the steel industry. You've probably seen like galvanized steel, like the steel with like the spangly pattern on the outside, you know, like that kind of steel. So that's, that's a layer of zinc on top of the steel to prevent it from corroding. So just that thin layer of zinc from the steel industry is recycled over a billion dollars. It's, it's very, very easy to recycle zinc. Same is not true of lithium. There's, there's a huge effort underway to try to find economical ways to recycle lithium-ion batteries. So we have this kind of double-edged problem with lithium of the supply chain needs to get real big real fast, and we need to figure out a way to not just throw it away when we're done. Because right now, less, you know, I've, heard, I've heard less than five, I've heard less than one. Low percentages of lithium batteries actually get recycled in the U.S. It's, it's a big challenge. So zinc can avoid those. Now, you know, zinc, zinc I, can speak, I can say this right now because zinc doesn't have the popularity problem of lithium. Right. But I think the scalability, you know, we don't see these kind of roadblocks ahead of us. Like, can we figure out a way to recycle a zinc battery? We don't need to. It's, it's, it's a very simple battery that plates metal inside all the time, and it's a water-based battery. It'll be easy to recycle. It's, you know, it's essentially just recycling itself every time you charge the battery. Can we find more zinc? Well, you know, zinc is already one of the highest, you know, I think it's the fourth or fifth most produced uh, metal in the world already, and it's recyclable, and it's everywhere. You know, these, these just don't seem like challenges for the future, like they are currently challenges for lithium. So I'll, I'll ask then, why doesn't zinc have the ubiquity of, of use that maybe it, it should? Like, what, what are the roadblocks? What's, what's prevented it yeah. from being adopted at that scale? Yeah, yeah. Well, in the history of zinc is, is that the very first battery ever invented, the voltaic pile in 1799 by Alessandro Volta, was zinc and copper. So zinc is, is, is literally one of the original battery metals. So, so zinc has been around in batteries for a long time. You know, Edison has patents on zinc batteries. In fact, zinc is the dominant battery chemistry for alkaline batteries. So double A's, triple A's, it used to be zinc carbon back in the old days. And then in like the 60s, they converted it. I think it was actually done here in Cleveland at Energizer to zinc manganese dioxide. So zinc batteries have been around for a long time. Hearing aid batteries are zinc air. Zinc is no stranger to batteries. But you'll note all the ones I just mentioned are non-rechargeable. So one of the biggest stumbling blocks for zinc has always been the rechargeability. It oxidizes really nicely. It's easy to drain these batteries. They're very dense. You know, hearing aid batteries are very, very dense zinc air, but there's been problems with recharging it. And so what's happened in the last 20 years or so with this growing market need for different kinds of batteries, better batteries, you know, just the, the need for batteries at large and also improvements in materials, um, you know, chemistry, that's what we're doing. People have gotten better at making these batteries and there's a need for more batteries they started to solve or at least kind of lessen some of these issues based on, re on rechargeability. You know, so lithium has been kind of this granddaddy of non-rechargeable batteries for a long time. And now, while we need more batteries, let's start solving some of that rechargeable problems and then we can get zinc to a place where it's, it's a real commercial competitor. You know, it's step by step. A lot of the companies we're working with have, have found workarounds or ways to solve some of these problems like dendrite growth, like hydrogen, like, you know, the, these things that hurt the cyclability of the battery. But there's still a lot more room for improvement, you know, and that's what we're really doing is bringing a complementary solution to whatever they've developed already. Ours is a product that you literally just blend into the battery. You, you mix it in with the liquid part of the battery 
and you put in 1% of our stuff, a tiny amount into the battery, and it stops your dendrites or it stops your hydrogen. It, it, we have customers who get 60% more battery life just by adding 1% of our additive, or the battery can hold 25% more energy just because they add a percent of our stuff. So despite the age of zinc batteries, the, the, the kind of modern look at rechargeable zinc batteries today is essentially where lithium ion batteries were probably 20 or 30 years ago. So it's, it's kind of a little renaissance happening with zinc batteries, you know, because zinc is very easy to work with. And, you know, the time is right for us to really reevaluate and find new uses for, for this elder statesman of, of battery technology. <laughs> I, I love that. So from your perspective, from Octet's perspective, what, what comes next? Like, how, you know, how do you mm-hmm. help amplify all of the, the work that you're doing and, and, and grow the company from here? Yeah, well, for us, I mean, one of our, one of our challenges is that the broader or the, or the future-looking side of the zinc battery market is still very young. We are, we are also working with the, the established side of the zinc market. So all those, you know, the companies that make double A's, triple A's, household names that you know, we're working with them too because they still need better chemicals inside their batteries to help extend shelf life or increase power output, things like this. So, so there is an established market that, that are testing our materials now. But the really exciting kind of grid storage, the places where zinc batteries could go really big we have to work with the customers and kind of be here as that emergence happens, you know? So we're pretty early in this sort of a thing. So where we're going is we've done a lot of product development work. We've done a lot of iterative work with our customers to find the best molecule for each of these companies. And like I said earlier, we're, we're scaling that up to meet their supply needs so that they can actually start going into these uh, batteries at larger scale. The exciting thing is a number of the companies that we're working with are starting to make some real serious commercial progress particularly on grid storage. Uh, some of the names there are uh, Zinc8, EOS Energy Storage, Redflow. You know, grid storage is this real kind of Wild West market right now where there's a lot of incumbency from lithium, not because lithium was, you know, because grid storage was here and lithium was in it from before, but rather grid storage became this immediate need and we need a battery and lithium was the battery standing there you know, at the time, you know, our best battery. So there's a lot of uncertainty about, well, which way is this market going to go? Which of these batteries are going to actually be the best on the grid? It's a very exciting time for zinc because there are a number of zinc chemistries that are being developed for that space. Elsewhere, another really exciting market is stationary power. So think of it as backup batteries. Mm. So, you know, we're becoming a so much more data intensive world. And so data centers, computing power, these things that cannot go down for any amount of time, you know, they have these backup batteries that are inside the data center, um, and now they're even sitting right on the rack with the servers. So you want a battery that doesn't require a lot of safety overhead, and it can be compact and sit right there. And zinc chemistries have some of the highest power density of any chemistry. So power density basically meaning you know how how much juice, how fast does it put the juice out is power, rather than just how much juice does it hold is the energy. So some companies like uh, Zinc Five, like Acer, Acer Technologies, uh, Sunergy is one in Europe. That are doing things, and what they're 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 mostly replacing lead acid, but they're also replacing some of the lithium that has started creeping into that market. And then we work with a number of other exciting companies who are doing medical wearables, like small button mm. cell micro batteries, where we have applications where you don't want to put a lithium battery because of the safety concerns in medical situations. So there's some really exciting silver silver zinc chemistries there, um, and then there's a lot of exciting military applications, certain kinds of drones, you know, more specialty sorts of things out there, but. I look at those and I smile because they remind me of the kind of sometimes the oddball beachheads that lead to larger market disruption. So like I said earlier, zinc air chemistry 
has higher energy density than lithium ion, but cyclability is like 30, 50 cycles is the best you can do. So I dream of a day when we get a multiple thousand cycle zinc air battery that could have the density of a lithium ion battery and be, you know, maybe a quarter of the cost or something. And then we can really, you know, then, you know, combustion cars will go away (laughs) because we'll have such cheap batteries, you know, and safe and like, you know, water-based. But first we got to, we got to get there through developments like the ones we're developing and and our customers' batteries. So, Wow. I mean, it's, it's really a a breadth of potential applications that Octet enables. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, these are companies and these are markets where companies are are selling their batteries now. So they have, they have commercial solutions that are competitive even, even before they've really started using a lot of our products. Some of them are using our products at early stages, but others we can still help improve. You know, like I said earlier, we're at a, at an early stage in the development of, of zinc batteries at large. So I think there's still a lot of room for improvement on those because it's always going to be a very competitive space, you know, energy storage. But one of the reasons we also chose zinc as kind of our target chemistry to work with is that breadth that, that you were describing here that like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of lottery tickets, you know, out there for the zinc, zinc battery. So like a lot of markets where they could really take off and they're all based on zinc. They all have metallic zinc anodes that you need to plate. So they could all be, you know, users of our chemistry. If we don't ultimately end up in this, this zinc powered or rather stored, you know, imagines future, what, mm. what, what, what will have gone wrong? Like it, it, cause it, the way you're describing it, it seems like maybe it's just a matter of time, but we should get there. I think looking backward at the battery industry, it's, it's generally one that doesn't have a lot of diversity, you know, like, I mean, even, even today you, uh, there are so many lead acid batteries around us all the time. Like all, all cars are powered by lead acid batteries. And if you look at the, the specs of a lead acid battery by modern standards, it's not a great battery. Hmm. You know, it doesn't have a very long life. You know, the, the, the depth of discharge is a challenge. It's based on lead, <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's like, but it's, but it's deeply entrenched. It's, 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 it's not causing a lot of pain and it's been there for so long. You know, there's only ever been a couple of different technologies that really dominate. Looking forward, a lot of people are speculating that that's going to change and there's going to be more diversity because of the the ubiquity of batteries we talked about earlier, it's not just going to be like batteries are this and every battery, is, you know, lithium ion is the battery and every battery in the world is lithium ion. Like that, that makes less sense looking forward for a number of reasons. So it's going to be, you know, lithium ion batteries are dense and they're high performing, but they are also kind of prima donnas. You got to keep them in the right temperature range. They can explode, you know, whatever. So yeah, they go in small devices, they go in our cars, but for this application, this battery is best. And for that application, maybe the other battery is best. So thinking that this will become competitive enough that there'll be different chemistries for, for different homes. I think something that could potentially, so, so you know, based on that, I've, I've, I've got faith that zinc will find one, probably many homes in these different applications. Um, it's got a lot more commercial momentum than other kind of emerging battery technologies. One thing we didn't talk about uh, yet, but it's, one of the frustrating things about working in the battery industry is the hype. <laughs> oh my mm-hmm. goodness, the hype, the breakthroughs, this breakthrough, that breakthrough, this, you know, <laughs> it's all over the place. You know, it's, it's well, I'm glad of, you brought it up because I was going to ask about it. <laughs> it's kind of this like barking carnival of like, you know, oh, this is going to change everything. This is going to change everything. The big challenge is scale up, is commercialization. You know, you can make a lot of really cool looking batteries in a lab. You know, you can, you can make one, two, a dozen really cool batteries or something funky that's, that's going to change the way things go. But batteries, they need to be, you need to make millions of them. 
You know, like that's, that's where they go. We're not, we're not working towards making one giant battery for the world, but rather, so there's a lot of challenges and zinc is way ahead of the game there because of its ease of ease of handling. You know, like a lot of the companies I mentioned earlier, they have products, you know, they're selling their batteries now. So they're competitive from a cost perspective, even before they've really scaled up. You know, a lot of these, a lot of those companies are making their batteries, they're selling their batteries. The batteries are being made by hand, you know, in factories and places. They don't have slick robots putting these things together, like, you know, in some sort of futuristic uh, factory. So there are a lot of interesting technologies being developed that could change the landscape. But, you know, we're talking about like solid state batteries or like lithium metal or some of these ones, but they're, they're still kind of chasing the markets where lithium dominates already. Like what would be great about solid state batteries? They could be denser, they could be safer, you know, but they will still probably be expensive. You know, they're, they're kind of looking to unseat lithium. And as I mentioned before, even today's lithium doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the grid. So those are going to be high-end complex batteries that are, you know, maybe we'll have cars that have twice the, the range or whatever. You know, I feel like a lot of the exciting lithium work that's being developed is like next generation batteries are going to kind of cannibalize the markets where lithium makes the most sense already, mm. lithium ion, you know. Zinc is going to be the kind of stalwart sidekick to lithium, I think, in the future, where it's like these are the rugged, safe, simple, cheap batteries that go on the grid that, you know, support data centers and hospitals and go in places where you don't need exceptionally high density, but you also don't want to live with dangerous safety, high cost, short lifetime, some of those things. So earlier on, you, you had mentioned that, you know, there, there's always unknown looking into the future as, you know, as part of the, the startup entrepreneurial process. And, and as part of that, you know, it's, it's almost the, the, the job of the startup to try and convert that unquantifiable unknown into something measurable that is a risk that you can manage. What are some of those unknowns that, that you're thinking about some of the risks that you're, you're managing and, and uh, yeah, where, where, where does Octet go from, from here? Yeah, I think the biggest one for us, I mentioned earlier that, that we are coming to this market quite early and I'm happy to say that we don't have any direct competitors. And in fact, many of our customers will say something to the likes of, you know, there's no, nobody else is doing what you're doing. We're really at the vanguard of developing new chemistry for zinc batteries. So we're, we're, we've had a really easy time engaging with our customers, bringing them chemistry that improves their performance. That's, that's kind of been the easier part. The riskier part, the kind of future looking part is how soon will they really grow and emerge and, you know, start to really dominate in the markets that they're playing in. So we're helping that because we're making their batteries better, but that's the timeline, you know, that I, that I think most about grid storage is a great example. Uh, you can see market reports that show the, you know, forecasting that the grid storage is going to be this, you know, $60 billion industry, but so a lot of them were very aggressive and how does that actually roll out has been a bigger question. I remember when I, so I started this company, I wrote the first proposal in 2017 and, you know, I used a Bloomberg Energy, uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, graphic, you know, that showed this big S-curve hockey stick of like, you know, all this, all this grid storage spending and this marketability. And, you know, it's, it's been slower rolling out. Like it's, if you look at it in terms of year over year increase, it's still shocking. It's like, wow, a 200%, 300% increase in energy store, you know, in grid storage spending. So it's still shooting straight up, but it's all about how far you zoom out of that graph, you know. So how fast that grows, how much of our customers capture that, you know, that's, that's one thing I look at. But I'm happy to say a lot of it's happening. Mm. And there's been some over-aggressiveness, I would say, from the market forecasting generally where grid storage will go. 
but it's still pointed straight up and it's still moving quickly. And our customers are doing a lot of exciting installations and their, their companies are growing too. So I'm happy that our customers are at this kind of commercial scale up stage rather than maybe a, a you know, product design. You know, a lot of our customers are in their second or third generation products already. So some of those unknowns are kind of fading away. And it's just a matter of timing. Like how, how big will they go? How soon? And you know, how would that affect us and our scale up plans? What could be done to accelerate and, and actually, you know, realize the, as you zoom out of that graph, you know, the, the scale and, and, and have it be real. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think is happening, we've, we've been trying to help it and I think we can do some more to it, but kind of raising as, as simple or trite as it might sound like raising awareness about zinc batteries. You know, it's still funny to me how everyone knows about lithium ion and I mean, if I asked you an honest question, before I told you earlier today that AA batteries had, were zinc-based, did you know that? No, I did not. No, nobody does. <laughs> you know, like the, the, the validity of, of zinc-based batteries, and not just in those AA's and stuff, but I mean, like I said, you know, a lot of companies have commercial zinc-based batteries that are in the field, and some of them have been in the field for years. So we're in this world where everyone's looking around right now and saying, wow, lithium's got a lot of challenges. The prices are going up. We don't know if this is, we're looking for alternatives. A lot of, everyone's looking for like, what else you got beyond lithium for different applications? And zinc is there in the field, but I think, I think that the national awareness of it still has to catch up. So one thing we're trying to do to help is trying to kind of organize some of those, you know, these, these customers of ours, these companies that make these batteries to become a bit more um, vocal, um, there's a new thing called the zinc, the zinc Battery Initiative formed a few years ago through the International Zinc Association to try to, like I've been saying, raise awareness and get people to realize that like these batteries, they're not an idea, they're not a laboratory experiment. You know, these are batteries that are real on the grid right now, running um, in the grid or data center or wherever they are. And so that's the way we're trying to help push it: is that getting people to realize like these batteries are scalable, they're here, they're commercial, they're real. Um, this isn't solid state that's seven or 10 years away or lithium metal, you know, like, and I think that will help drive adoption really of, of these batteries. But, you know, it's also a challenge because what does a person want a battery to do? They want it to just sit in the corner and be ready to give me power when I need it. Right. You know, it's, it's a very much a, you know, a bankability kind of industry where it's, it's not one where, you know, you get a lot of excited early adopters who are like, I can't wait to get my hands on this new battery. I hope it works. You know, I, you know, it's, it's one where there's a lot of caution. We, we talk to a lot of the utility companies. So you might think, who's going to buy these grid storage batteries and think like, oh, big power companies. So they can set them next to their plants or their whatever. But the utility industry we find tends to be a bit more cautious. It's more of like the renewables companies that are embracing these new technologies sooner. So, you know, there'll probably be some tipping point where we've got enough credibility out there. People have seen these batteries running for long enough that they're ready to, to you know, some of the bigger players ready to, to bank on them. And so things will really turn a big corner there, but it's, it's coming along, you know, because largely because there's challenges with lithium and some, some places you, you, you won't get your lithium batteries for a couple of years. So if you want something sooner, you may take a chance on, on the zinc that's, that's ready now. Hmm. So I think, I think awareness is a part of it. You know, they're great products and they're working. So it's, it's a matter of building that trust, you know, grid batteries, they're signing power purchase agreements that are for 15 or 20 years. So they're making long-term commitments on these batteries, you know, so they want to be sure you know, these batteries will last that long and they will, but some people need to see it before, before they're ready to pull that trigger. 
Yeah. No, it, it's it's fun. it's kind of fun to think about it as a as a branding problem and and you know, for better or for worse, lithium's <laughs> yeah. got this I don't know, sex appeal as a battery, you know, mineral because yeah. of electric cars, you know, whatever applications of it that exist. Yeah. And that that's our challenge. Like I've in my early stumblings on like social media, but like like LinkedIn and that sort of a thing trying to position, you know, we try to point out the limitations of lithium without just like talking bad about lithium. Because like I said before, you know, lithium is is a heroic battery chemistry that will literally save the world. So, right. you know, we need to do something about climate change. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. Uh, transportation is one of the biggest reasons. That's what lithium is here to do. Lithium is going to save that day. All of our days, really, you know. Um, so we try to position it so that like, but you know, we need to make sure all the lithium that we got goes to that problem. So let's use zinc in other places. Let's use a technology that's safe, sustainable. I like to point out that we all have a few grams of zinc in our body at any given time because it's a necessary <laughs> mineral. You know, it's it's in my daily vitamin. Yeah, yeah. There's no downside. This isn't like a, yeah, zinc will work, but it's mined by, you know, slave children on their side of the world. Like, no, 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 no. We've got it. We can recycle it. You know, it's, there's, we don't pay these prices for this. Let's, let's, Let's work on this. Let's make this, you know, a, a battery of the future. Yeah, like you said, it might not be as sexy as lithium. It's not going to drive a fast car. But, you know, it's going to do a lot of the work, a lot of the grunt work that lithium probably shouldn't be bothered with. <laughs> yeah, well, it it comes full circle because I think it goes back to where we, we started, which was that, you know, we have this proliferation on the production side of energy right now. And as the cost of all of that approaches, you know, net zero, mm. We we should be thinking about you know how do we how do we store energy at at scale? Yeah, yeah, and I think going I've I've talked a lot about grid you know and I think I think grid is like a big exciting you know it's 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 a one of the most exciting applications but the markets for batteries everywhere else are are huge too and you know there's still we still use a lot of lead acid you know in our in our cars and our data centers it's it's a wonderfully you know it's very highly recycled in the U S. But a lot of that recycling is done overseas, and a lot of that recycling, the recycling is the largest source of lead contamination, mm. you know, in the world. So that's good. It's good we put this effort into it, and yet, you know, still just handling lead leads to this kind of problem. So, you know, I'd like to see us get rid of lead wholesale because nickel zinc side by side is a better technology and one that we could be making now as was one example. Batteries are just going to become such a critically ubiquitous part of our lives that we owe it to ourselves in the future to have the best batteries in those those conditions. And not just the best in terms of performance, but the best in terms of cost, performance, and sustainability. Uh, because something that kind of rankles me is, uh, you'll sometimes see people point to the mining that's required for, for battery materials and say, see, see, they're not so green. See, see, they got to they gotta mine this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, it's true. These things need to be dug out of the ground, just like oil, which we dig out of the ground once and then burn. These are things that we could also recycle, reuse, and again, zinc's you know ex- excels in that application. So, I just feel like looking at all the possible battery technologies that we're we're considering now, zinc is some of the cleanest, easiest, no braineriest kind of future looking battery. It's not as dense as lithium. It's it's not going to drive your Tesla, but you know it might someday. But in the meantime, it can be the completely guilt free option we could be using in a lot of other places. With the 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 tribulations of the the first go at the the U.S. National Science Foundation application and and the learning you know really that you have to kind of ground it in the the problems of your customers 
I'm curious as you've you know proceeded on the entrepreneurial journey, what what have been some of the other learnings that that you've taken with you and uh, you know reflections on on the whole the whole process so far? Uh, yeah, it's it's a big question. You know, there's you know I'd <laughs> I'd say that I'm I'm really proud of the work we did in our first our first phase one. You know, I think we developed a good product. You know, that was our first patent. We had a, we had good engagement with our customers, but what we didn't do soon enough was send products to the customers. So that didn't happen until after we had written. So I, I feel like there weren't there weren't really any missteps there. Maybe just steps not taken fast enough. I'd say the 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 biggest part of the journey that I've been on, you know, like I, I should also mention that we are as we speak. I'll put together a press release soon for our our round. We're, we've closed a seed round. It'll probably be out there, you know, by the time this this airs. So we we have investors. We did a, we did a seed round in investment. So we've raised money for a chemical manufacturing company in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, so it's a bit unusual compared to what a lot of startups are based on. So we have a very, you know, a more cost intensive kind of R&D, you know, we have a laboratory, we're developing a physical product. You know, it's a much different animal than a lot of what people think of as startups, you know, that are a little more nimble in terms of their overhead. So we've, we've gone through that, but I think it's, it's been good that the, the region and maybe the nation as a whole is kind of waking up to the need to invest in more hard tech manufacturing, real physical products. Yeah. The the Inflation Reduction Act is a godsend to companies like ours because we are want we are making chemicals that go into batteries. Our customers are making batteries in the US. We think this is critically important to energy security in the future and just, you know, a, a more broadly spread global economy rather than having these certain pinch points of different element different materials, different products. So that coming along at the same time has been great for us too and, and kind of shining a light on the sorts of things that we're doing to um, do this in the U.S., you know. So I think the, the climate may be improving for that, but um, raising in our kind of unusual situation and also, you know, over the backdrop of the last year when there's a big slowdown and valuations changing a lot. And I learned a lot through that process. <laughs> but I think what's really been good is that we since the beginning of the company we've we've had a very clear vision about what we're trying to do, the markets that we're working with. Um, our challenge, like I said, is that we're very early, but that's also a big opportunity for a company as small as ours to make a big impact and get a defensible market position. Once once all these batteries are using our chemistry, you know that's that's a great place to be in as they scale. So learning how to take this kind of science idea in a, a kind of market idea and, and start building it into a real company that, that knows what it's doing and makes money by selling chemi- chemicals, chemistry, you know, I'd say has been the biggest learning over the course of the last few years. Mm-hmm. You, you had mentioned that coming into it all, you did not really have a firm grasp or understanding of batteries. Do you find that that you know, beginner's mindset coming into it has served, served you well in, in your ability to kind of like just from a place of curiosity, approach the problem space. What are there things you wish you knew that that you now know <laughs> that would have been helpful at the beginning? Yeah, I'm, certainly there are. I, I think that this this kind of goes back to in my mind what I was saying before about the difficult transition from being like a scientist, like in an academic setting, to being like um, kind of like a founder or you know like a, a novice in some way. Because you know, I think it's at the heart of any kind of a startup is like you're exploring new space. So there's going to be a lot of things you don't know. And I think another way that you get punished in, in, in the, the science fields is for not knowing stuff, <laughs> you know? Right. So it can be really difficult to walk into a situation just saying, I don't know. I don't know this. I haven't learned this yet. You know, 
so we've had to, you know, educate ourselves a lot on batteries, talk a lot with our customers to understand, you know, their, the, the challenges that they really see, you know, we've, we've added to our team. So we, we have a lot more, you know, battery expertise on the team now than when we got started, but you know, you have to be comfortable not knowing things, I think to, to move forward because, you know, it, it, you have to explore the unexplored space and embrace the unknown unknowns. And I think that's just can be really difficult. It was hard for me. It's an important part of, of, of growing and something you just need to kind of be, be at, at peace with if you're going to be doing something new. Hmm. What, one of the things that I want to ask you about as well before we, we round it out here, which is particularly over time through, through the podcast now, I'm, I'm becoming increasingly convinced that there is a, a large opportunity for this technology transfer component of entrepreneurship where, I mean, very evidently, there's a lot of, of value, both business and for society that is, is contained within, you know, Case Western and the other institutions in the area. And I'm sure, you know, quite at large, how do we get more tech transfer in, in practice? Yeah, it's, it's challenging. You know, I've, I've worked at that interface because I, I worked for a, a large corporate entity, you know, working with faculty on the campus. And I've done, I've done similar things in other roles in academics before joining industry. And it's, there's, there are some kind of fundamental challenges around the, the way that the two kind of entities generally operate mm. that, that make it really challenging to kind of work together. Now, if it's, if, I think the biggest limitation as I see it for tech transfer is that universities, you know, first of all, you need to know what, what does a market want? You know, what, what's a sallable solution to, you know, to, in the world? And, you know, you have to have a good awareness of that that sometimes is lacking in academic settings. And sometimes the, the solutions that are most valuable in industry or outside of uh, a university setting are they can be too simple to be of interest to the university. You know, like if I use the example of chemistry, my background, you know, you can publish papers where you, you know, develop complex molecules or you do some really kind of exciting trick shooting to make a new molecule. You know, in the academic world, you're kind of, you're kind of rewarded for complexity and difficultness, you know, and kind of finding a way to make a really hard thing happen. And oftentimes that's not something that's really translatable to an industrial application. So kind of aligning those things is just kind of inherently challenging. Like the things that are needed in industry sometimes are rel- relatively simple solutions, you know, that wouldn't make for a good paper, say. So, so there's that kind of a challenge. The other thing that I always felt that was a, a challenge for um, these two entities working together was that in the academic setting, it's all about sharing information. You know, you, when you make a discovery, you publish a paper, that's where your rewards lie in, in you know, papers and, you know, that's, that's like, that's like where the, the, that mountain leads is, that you're climbing over there. And in industry, it's the exact opposite. Like we might think like, oh, they want to write patents and this sort of a thing. And it's like, well, yes and no. More valuable than a patent is a secret that nobody else knows. <laughs> you know, the, the, like a trade secret that the company has, you know, so there's, there's exact opposites I've seen plenty of times where the company, you know, an, uh, an industrial organization wants to develop something so that no one can know about it ever. And they can kind of hold that secret and use it to make money. And an academic might want to, you know, tell the world this wonderful, the secret that they discovered. So they're often at odds in that way too, that I, I find can be difficult to even kind of work together to find a solution. 
because one side gets rewarded for telling everyone about it. The other side gets rewarded for telling only as much as they need to, to move forward. But, but I, the caveat here is that's not my field. <laughs> I'm sure you've had people on who know a lot more about tech transfer. And like I said before, our company did not start as a spin out from case. We just, you know, they had my, my friend uh, Rohan, his group does theoretical and, you know, well, theoretical, but also modeling, you know, empirical electrochemistry. I do organic, you know, organic uh, molecule design. So there was a good interface between like, I'm going to make up these molecules. Will you test them for me? And then yes. And then, you know, so want to be clear on that. Yes. No, I, I appreciate the, the clarification. I, it's just, even with that said, it's, it feels like there's such an unlocked potential in it and that there, there's really this opportunity because even just here in Cleveland, there's a, there's, you know, dozen plus really amazing companies that are, are getting real commercial traction that, that come from that, you know, walking and then figuring out the, the, the dance there in, in a way that they're not stepping on each other's feet. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's funny too, that my position, I, I, I wanted to generalize and say as a scientist, but at least in my position, I, I've, came into this this situation here thinking that like you know you need to a very a very solutions based view of of the potential for a company like i thought could i can i make this company work well yes if i find the perfect scientific solution then i can make the company work and getting to this point i look at it a little bit differently where it's like we, we don't need to make the perfect solution to make this work we need to make a better solution we need to make something that, that, that actually solves the challenges of our customers, but it doesn't need to be perfect. It doesn't need to be the best of all possible iterations. We don't need to understand it in every possible way. We need to understand it well enough to make a product out of it and serve our customers, and it has to bring them real value. You know, so I think there are probably a lot of technologies that are, that are in the coffers at different universities that would be good enough to find a new market, to, to go somewhere, but you need to have someone pick those up and, and really find a home for them and take them forward. The solution doesn't need to be perfected. In fact, it's probably better that it's not because there's going to be things you don't know about what your customers really need and ways that solution needs to kind of wiggle around to find exactly the way they want it. But, you know, it's a special kind of skill set to take those sorts of things. And you need to know that you're going after a market that's real and exists Yeah, yeah. before you invest all that time. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's quite a, a formative shift in perspective, though. That's very cool. It's generally my strategy is to when I'm, when I'm thinking of trajectories of things I'm doing, I think of like, you know, how wide they are, <laughs> you know, like if you're trying to land this plane perfectly on this narrow runway, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult. So I try to think of like, well, if we can get at least this far and then we can see if, 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 if our solution can shift to this or that, you know, I, I guess I, I, I put a lot of contingency in my future planning. And I think even, even from like a, a molecular standpoint, you know, we look for molecules where we can have a lot of flexibility, we can modify them if necessary and, you know, kind of building that into any plan for a startup, I think, is pretty critical. Well, we, we've covered a, a lot, of, a lot of ground here. Um, and before I, I ask my traditional closing question, I did want to leave a little space to see if if there's anything really important here that that you don't think we've we've covered or, or touched on yet. No, I think I I think it's been a pretty good talk. Um, I could go on and on a lot about <laughs> you know their their different what batteries are and what they're going to mean. But I think some of the biggest points I covered here, um, it's an exciting time. I, I think that batteries are going to become a much bigger part of life going forward. Just the way that we all know the price of gas all the time, even though, you know, it's all it does is drive our cars around. But like, I think batteries will kind of occupy a similar space in humanity going forward. And I hope that they're not a pain. I hope that like they work and they're great. and we, We're happy about it. 
So I, I'm happy to get out some of those bigger messages of how like, you know, lithium is great, but it has its limitations. We think zinc can really fill the role to keep lithium where it needs to be and give us a really, really great battery um, in other applications too. So if I could say anything to the world, I guess <laughs> that's the sort of thing I want to let them know. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it really is incredibly exciting, uh, the, the work that you're doing. And I, I've enjoyed very much learning about it. So thank you. No, my pleasure. We can we can talk more offline anytime you want. <laughs> you learn even more. <laughs> uh, you should be careful putting that out there. I'll take you up on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll ask you uh, our traditional closing question now, which is is completely unrelated to, to any of this, but it, it is about Cleveland, and it's it's for uh, a hidden gem for for something that other folks may not not know about, but perhaps they should. Yeah. You know, one thing, this is kind of abstract, but the thing that I really love, and I should mention that I, I moved here from Michigan, my wife and I, about 10 years ago. So, so I didn't grow up here. I'm, I'm an outsider. But, so, but what I really like about Cleveland, and since we've been here, is the really interesting history. It really crosses over, you know, it, it touches a lot of points in my mind with like the, the startup world that, is, that we're especially in, but in general, because a lot of companies were founded here that you probably never heard of and they might still exist in some other form. But like in the early 20th century, when the world was just industrializing, I mentioned the Baker electric car company earlier, there was a lot of real can do kind of ambitious ideas around, you know, like the, the arc lamp and Charles brush, like before incandescent lamps was one of the first like electric lights ever invented was, was done in Cleveland. And, you know, these, these, these old millionaire magnates who had these, this this guy um, Brush, I was reading about him. He had like an all electric farmhouse. You know, it was in the countryside back then, but it was actually closer to downtown than where I'm sitting right now. And had this big windmill, and he had batteries in this in the place, lead acid batteries that like ran his. You know, like the, the things that we think are the future today were things people were playing around with back then and starting new companies. You know, and like the the you know, GE's presence in the area and. I've really been thrilled to to dig into some of that history of, you know, and then, you know, Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And I know, you know, oil, you know, it's, we're moving away from that now, of course. But like this region had a lot of that, you know, making the future kind of energy, you know, pun unintended, <laughs> you know, back then, you know, and it's, it's really exciting to, to, to think because people will often say like, oh, you're doing a startup. Oh, and, you know, in Cleveland, they don't expect that. They think startups, you know, are born in California. But, you know, to read into the history, like, this is where a lot of that happened. And a lot of kind of real visionary, wide-eyed people were developing new technologies here, and they were going to change the world doing it, you know. So it's it's exciting to see see those roots um, in this area. So I like to go to, you know, Lakeview Cemetery, and you see some of the tombstones of, you know, Rockefeller, some mm-hmm. of these famous people, you know, and you think, it wasn't all that long ago that they were, you know, changing the world in ways we're, we intend to do it now, too. And so it's, it's, it's really exciting. And so that's, that's kind of my hidden gem, I think, is that there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of cool history, you know, that I think it's overlooked in Cleveland. I, I wish there was a, a, a brighter light shown on it, you know, that's, those were startups, you know, those were, those were the sorts of things that we're excited about today, 100 years ago, so. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that sentiment very much. I think it, it, is, a, it is a real hidden gem. The, the, the history here is, is, is quite fascinating and, and rich and diverse. Actually, I'll, I'll throw a plug in there too, which I, because <laughs> I, I just finished reading it, so it's very topical. There's a book called The Ohio Guide, which the State of Ohio Work Progress Administration wrote in 1940, uh, and I guess at the time the federal government had instituted this this grant program for states to write 
you know, their own history book up to that point in time. And I think 30 something states opted to, to participate in this and Ohio was one of them. And so they wrote this really comprehensive history of Ohio from inception through 1940. And it was one of the most fascinating reads I've, I've done recently. Um, so I, if, if you haven't seen that one, I would, I would check that one out too. Yeah, I should. That, that sounds really interesting. Unfortunately, you know, like I mentioned this Charles Brush estate that had this big giant windmill and all electric. He also like had it torn down on the event of his death, like one of his will, <laughs> you know, so like some of this history, it's like, oh, you should have kept that. That would be really cool <laughs> now. You know, like we could, this region could say, you know, first we are the first zero carbon household, you know, like we could be doing cool stuff like that. But, but these people were so industrious. They were like, when I die, tear it all down. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we could we'll keep the industrial banner going. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again so much for for coming on and and for uh, you know, sharing your story. It's again, it's it's really fascinating and uh I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm realizing now I, I I failed to mention my investors and I wish I had Jumpstart. I don't know if there's a way to squeeze it in. We we can get it in uh when we launch the episode. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I should definitely mention Jumpstart and the Advanced Manufacturing Fund. They're our lead investors. All right, the the, the actual last question then, if folks had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the best way for them to do so? The best way is probably to send me an email. I'm kind of old fashioned. So at um, onus.bolton at octetsci.com. That's also our website. So it's O-C-T-E-T-S-C-I.com. Um, and I'm onus.bolton at octetsci. So that's the most effective way. Great. Well, thank you again. All right. Yeah, my pleasure. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.